I mean, I think perfection is right, is getting the grant, getting the papers published. That's the perfection metric that you're looking for, right? And that is a product of lots of different factors. Welcome to Helium Podcast. I'm Matt Hotze here with Christine Ogilvie-Hindren. You just heard Beth Calhoun talking about her approach to perfection. Beth Calhoun is the executive director of the Center for Population Health Sciences and a professor of community, environment, and policy, as well as surgery at the University of Arizona. And if you can't tell for for how long that sentence was, she's kind of a big deal. Beth joined us to help us answer the question of how to find enjoyable and generous relationships with senior faculty when you're just starting out as an early career researcher. It was so fun talking to the powerhouse that is Beth and thinking about in your early career, how you don't measure success by how perfect an individual proposal is or the article that you're submitting, which is admittedly a bit of a shift from the thinking um, that gets you to the position of being an early career researcher building a lab. But instead, you measure success based on acceptance of articles and proposals funded and your hit rates. So how is it that you gain the confidence to get better at just getting things done and out the door and working with the people around you? Yeah, Christina, I think that's where her advice about working with senior faculty comes into play because she talks about finding the right mentors that will push you to get things done and will help you along the way. And those mentors will understand that, as Voltaire said, the best is the enemy of the good. And you need to learn how to get the things out the door and get those things published. And those senior faculty, if they're the right kind of faculty that enjoy mentoring, will help you get that done and get your volume up as an early career researcher. But finding these mentors means carefully navigating politics because sometimes these relationships don't work out. And as you say, Christine, untying things sometimes is more important than cutting them. Yeah, I uh, really liked how she talked to us about just honest takes on navigating out of bad relationships with people in both directions, you know, senior faculty, people uh, all around you. And how do you avoid the competence traps? Well, and the confidence traps, I guess. Competence is also something (laughs) you got to keep your eye on. But um, And how to be flexible and not set in stone with what your biosketch is going to look like, but let the narrative unfold from what's around you and be generative and opportunistic when when the time comes to be those things. So it was just a real pleasure to have Beth here. She's a friend of the show. She's a BFF of my older, brilliant sister, but she's also, uh, most importantly, just such a highly accomplished uh, researcher who's generous with her time and her honesty. She's been a part of over 80 grant applications over the last three years. That is a machine of production. So anyway, I think that you will enjoy as much as we did this high energy episode with Beth Calhoun. Hi, Beth. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Christine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, this is so fun. I've been really looking forward to this one. Um, so for our listeners, Beth is an academic powerhouse, but the way that I met her is because she is good, good friends with my smart, brilliant, amazing big sister. And that's where I uh, that's where I met Beth in different circumstances. 
having great fun together and getting to know each other personally. And then uh, I realized over the years that she is a straight genius and she knows how to navigate this world, um, seeing all the fun possibilities and being confident and walking into every room and saying like, why not? So I figured that her insights uh, should not be kept selfishly. It'd be fun for us to have a, a conversation and just uh, share it with everybody. Well, fantastic. I'm happy to help. Um, and answer anything you want to know <laughs> and what I've learned the last 25 years in academics. Yeah. And I think that our audience uh, who are early career researchers could really benefit from hearing from you because we're, we're really thinking about in terms of our audience, people that are transitioning from maybe a postdoc into a professor position, getting that first job, and then also transitioning from having that job and then kicking butt at the job. Right. And so there's, yep. there's a couple of transitions that we're thinking about in terms of our audience and the, the key pieces of information that, that we like to think of this podcast as being mentoring at large for those people. So instead of just having a couple of mentees, you're by coming on the podcast ever so graciously helping more like hundreds of people make those kinds of transitions in their own careers. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to be part of the village of mentors. Awesome. So one thing I love the village language is, um, you know, a lot of times people who are uh, coming up hear the advice that you need to network. Um, and at the same time, they kind of have this knee jerk visceral reaction to the idea of going around kind of artificially shaking hands and introducing themselves and, and thinking of networking as a real, you know, a kind of artificial chore. And so you are are great at this. And I wonder if you have some kind of advice or experience you want to share of just like, how do you organically grow your network and unabashedly draw on it? And how do you make use of that really important skill in academia? So, I mean, I, I do think it is an important skill. And I think you need to surround yourself with the with mentors that can help you. You got to make sure that mentors have a role and you need to think about like in that village, who do you need? You know, you need, there's people that are going to be able to be helpful scientifically, but there's also those people who know how to network. I mean, there's a good, you can have a good networking mentor, right? How do you figure out within those, you know, within the thought leaders or whatever your field is, how you get yourself known and finding those key networking mentors is as important as having those scientific mentors um, or clinical mentors, or, you know, I think mentoring is not something that academics do well naturally. And I think it's unfortunate. You know, I was lucky early in my career. I've always been a team scientist, which is a new sort of the newer, more novel thing in um, academics, but I've done it since the nineties. So I um, am naturally inclined that way and, you know, have had the tough conversations with, you know, people more senior to me saying, hey, you do not need to be senior author. That is crazy, right? You're an emeritus professor. You know, you're in the middle. I'm in the middle in my career already, you know? I mean, I've been a full professor for quite a number of years. It doesn't matter. I don't, you know, my associate professors need to be senior authors. So, and, and you've got to find somebody who's going to do that for you. If you're running across 
your mentor, you know, trying to take credit for things that you're doing. I mean, you need to, to, to run actually. I'm not sure having a conversation early in your career is, is that you're capable of doing that. I think those are the people you steer clear of. You know, you need to find the people that uh, are willing to give you the time and enjoy mentoring. Like that's something I like doing. I mean, and I still have my doctoral students who are now in various faculty positions that I touch base with routinely, you know? So the key to navigating the complexities of academics, I do think is finding key mentors. So actually I wanted to go to uh, something you said there uh, because I was thinking about your example of running away from someone who's taking credit uh, for your work. Do you maybe without getting into names or anything, do you have a specific, I mean, because I think someone would think that and say, well, that's really hard to do. And do you have specific examples of people that have, have, have managed to navigate, navigate that kind of thing? Because certainly that exists, uh, but navigating that narrow passageway out of a, a bad relationship like that can be difficult. Sure. Um, I, you know, I think the best way to navigate out of it is with another senior faculty. I think, and you, you, you can't, you don't want to be, um, maybe running fast is a bad thing. I think you have to maybe more gracefully exit, right? So you're on a project that you conceived the idea, but the faculty is taking more credit. I think you just wrap that up, you know, and sort of be done with it. And don't, in, you know, don't start any new research endeavors with that person. And just, you know, maybe have a nice conversation that, says, you know, I think I'm going to be going a different direction and, you know, but I, uh, it would be nice for you to have already sort of found another faculty in which to sort of move to and toward, to, you know, a natural transition. But I think it's a, to be careful. You got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You really highlight some important things, which are just sort of um, that, importance of tacit understanding of the power dynamics and realizing what your move is. So maybe your intention, as you're pointing out, is always to figure out the next step. How do you keep doors open? How do you advance? And when you're in a certain position of power, you say what you want and you get that thing. And when you're maybe in a different place, you figure out how to untie things rather than cut them. Right. Right. But being able to feel that nuance is, is really good advice. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, that's a better way to say it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, um, (laughs) I read that adage on the doctor's office of my daughter's doctor and it was like, you know, a fortune cookie level wisdom. Right. But I, I saw it was on a day that I needed to hear it, uh, never cut what can be untied. And I thought, you know, it takes longer but yep. sometimes it might be the right move. Yep. Um, no, I think that's true. But in your head, you're running. Yeah, in your head, you're running. But no, it's true. And especially because, you know, this is a bit of a brutal place, right? Academics, peer review is not, you know, like a sales career. I mean, my husband is a sales guy. And I remember in early in our marriage, after a year of a, at a job, he was like, can you believe nobody recognized me today? And I was like, 
uh, yes, I've been at this for decades and nobody's recognized me. I actually met a woman. I met a woman <laughs> yesterday. She's going to be recognized. She's been at the University of Arizona since 1969, 50 years as a surgery professor. Founders Day next month is her first recognition. 50 years. Very different. Slow and steady. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not, going to be around for 50 years. (laughs) I'm going to be retired for sure. But, you know, you have to have sort of a a more tough skin. You know, peer review is not kind. It's not gentle. Yeah, I was thinking that, you know, that this also ties in the the idea of untying rather than cutting, but you also have to have confidence in order to untie. You have to have confidence. Yeah. And so we were, we were actually thinking in terms of what kind of advice you have in terms of, I mean, maybe you're, maybe you're just a naturally confident person, but maybe you also have developed confidence over your careers and over your career. And so thinking about the ways that that confidence was developed or how you've advised others to, to develop their confidence. So I think sort of the biggest thing that I see um, young faculty do is that they're not confident in enough in their papers or their grants. I mean, they're always working to, to perfection. And that's the last thing you really should be thinking about early in your career because it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect because the peer review process is imperfect. So, you know, you have to, I mean, there's times where I think I've pulled together something that's really sloppy and it gets funded. And I have put together something that I think is a beautiful specimen of a grant and it gets triaged. I mean, and I still get triaged as a senior person. And you have to take, you have to be able to be confident enough to let it go. You got to let it go, you, you know? And that's where I see most people stumble, you know, and it's and in early career. It's all about volume. It's, it's I mean, quality is important, but volume is important. You got to get yourself in a you know position of pumping stuff out. Um, my team, we've been at the University of Arizona and I have like a four or five man team. I mean, we've submitted like 80 grants. I mean, we've helped people. I mean, it's not just all of us, but, you know, I'm sort of a, I'm more like an assembly line than I am, uh, that, you know, that's, a, a, a hand crafter. That's 80 grants. And, and how long that team has been together? Three years. Three years. Wow. <laughs> five, five faculty members. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's amazing. A, a factory. Well, and I wonder, <laughs> I mean, this idea, well, you know, the, the, Thing is I, I have a lot of recyclable material. <laughs> I'm uh, like, oh, I've got a grant on that, or I've got something on that. Yeah, I've got the library. <laughs> I'm like a library. library. Yeah. Well, and when you build up that momentum, you can keep drawing on what you've done right. before. Um, I wonder if you, I, I think I may know the answer to this based on what you're saying, but when you see people falter in their confidence and think that perfection in their job means a perfect specimen of a grant rather than perfect rolling along momentum, which it sounds like it, it is what perfection should look like. What what does it look like when somebody's making a mistake? Is it just continuing to take too long or not going for it enough? Or how does it manifest? Well, 
I mean, I think perfection is right, is getting the grant, getting the papers published. That's the perfection metric that you're looking for, right? And that is a product of lots of different factors. And, you know, the, I think where people falter is sometimes they, um, they don't want to let go, right? That's the other thing. I think a lot of people think, um, and I, some people will argue against me and, and that's, I'll, that's fine too. I've been more of an opportunist. I mean, I would say generically, I'm a, um, health services, health disparities researcher. But if you look at my CV, I've published in, you know, all kinds of clinical diseases. I've not stuck to, you know, one in particular. Um, you know, my career started, I was at a medical school. So I was at Northwestern Medical School early in my career. And as a, um, you know, as a PhD, what I did was find smart clinicians who didn't know anything about methodology, but knew enough clinically. And we put together, you know, grants or papers and worked together. So it depends on what institutions you are and how do you capitalize on the talent around you, right? I mean, did I think that was going to be my career? Did I care? You know, I'm sort of now much more morphed into an implementation sort of dissemination scientist, I would say. But, you know, there's no clear path. On my bio sketch, I have like four areas of expertise. And, and, and I'd say they're sort of, you know, loosely. <laughs> um, so a lot of people, if they just keep wanting to submit the same grant, I, you know, let it move and let it, let it go. I've recycled them all now, 20 years later, and they've been very practical and useful. I mean, this reminds me, Christine, of, of what we were talking about with Greg in episode 15, I think, or 16, where he was, this is Dr. Greg Lowry, we interviewed him on it, and he was talking about having three lines in the water at the beginning of his career in three different research areas, and really being okay with not having nibbles, uh, maybe just nibbles on a couple yeah. of those, and then just yeah. and just pivoting to the place pivoting to the place that's actually going to show up and not, and I think you're adding to this advice and saying, don't keep the line in the water. Don't keep baiting that hook. If nothing's going to show up, right. If, if nothing's showing up, then that's just not happening right now. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay to let go of this is not the kind of research I'm going to be able to do right now. That's correct. I mean, and actually in the last couple of years, I've been, because I'm allowed to at this point in my career, I've been, I really wanted to do some research on the Affordable Care Act. And I tried, and there just was not a lot of calls for it. Um, I'd try to stick it into all sorts of ways, but I never got a number. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I got a whole group of young um, investigators working, looking at the policy impacts that of their clinicians, but there was just not grants. And I just, at, at, as a school professor and a senior person, I kept trying to stick it in there. And that, you know, I didn't get any bites. Um, if you do that early in your career, that's not a good move. Man, that, that sort of wisdom about sequencing when you pick your battles and what ones you feel that you want to spend your capital on seems really wise. Um, yeah. the other thing I wanted to follow up on is something that's come up a couple of times in your, uh, conversation here is, one, the fact that you were early on a team scientist, and then two, relatedly, that you're saying, 
I think when you're choosing which opportunities to go after, you talked a lot about the people around you and their talents being maybe one of your deciding factors. So I really like that idea because we are often, you know, groomed to say, what are my strengths? We're brought in maybe when you get your first professor job, you're, you're brought in because the department thinks you fit maybe a niche that they were looking for. But then you aren't an individual only and your strength is also the team around you. So did you do things to kind of hone your skill at figuring out how to bring people into the fold and get people all pointed in the same direction? Would you advise, you know, get hooked up with the center or any stepwise things that people should do to learn how to do that in their landscape? Absolutely. I mean, I would say my whole career was started when I participated in the cooperative agreement. So a U01. I've subsequently been in probably 10 of them. But as a very junior person, and this, this will, it's actually going to be, it's funny. It's, it was called the chronic, re, um, chronic prostatitis research collaboration program. So it was these, a bunch of urologists that there's this enigma, um, this thing that just sort of is a, a bothersome prostate, right? Which I've sort of learned that is the female's revenge for men. But <laughs> your prostate goes bad when you get old. And, <laughs> But, you know, I wrote an economic paper. I had, I was part of a working group and I got, you know, it was in archives of internal medicine, which is a decent journal, you know, a first author publication. And to be honest, I am still referenced on this. Now it's called chronic pain, but it's still going. And I'm still part of, you know, actually I was on a New England journal recently because 20 in 1995, I started on this group and they continue to work together. And I was a founding member. And so I'm still an acknowledgement in their papers. So if you can find some of those larger um, opportunities and, and be part of a working group and like, you know, I didn't care much about um the disease itself, but I cared about the burden on the um, health system. So I wrote the paper on, you know, what is this economic burden both to the health system, but also there was a lot of quality of life impact. So I looked at sort of the indirect costs, but from a, from that, you know, I learned how to, to operate in a group. And actually it's very fun to be part of that. You know, we, I've been friends with them. I've been to some of their houses, you know, over, 10 years, you get to go to meetings and then you guys hang out. And That's been a really fun theme across conversations is just the, the benefit of being in this crazy world is that you, you sort of know your colleagues as whole people, you know, and you're engaging in the creative process together, I think does that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that what you're saying is making me think of is, is almost like building wealth where you can live off the interest of your academic capital at some point. And then, you know, you're not necessarily paycheck to paycheck, paper to paper as much. If you can think about ways that you can build on your credibility. And that's true. And I mean, the, the sad thing is the system is set up sort of more paycheck to paycheck. Right. I mean, and when you're junior, if you can find somebody that you can continue to feed, like, for example, I've, you know, had the luxury of, of being PIs of center grants and, and actually the largest grant that Arizona ever got. 
you know, but that means I have lots of data that can be used, you know, when the, when your five years of funding up, funding are up, lots of junior people, you got to move on, right? You got to keep, keep getting that paycheck. Um, whereas, you know, more senior people, I, I've, you know, uh, had lots of junior people get R21s by using the data that I had, you know, so finding somebody who is generous, um, but also data rich, um, I think is important. And, you know, and the key really is find the right, you know, that right person, you know, there's not, there's a lot of people that are not going to let you do that. And they let their stuff languish. And I mean, I think there's so much juice to be squeezed at the NIH. I mean, we, we could live indefinitely off of it because there's so many grants that just get left. I, I wanted to ask a question. Yeah. I wanted to ask a question because I think maybe, and maybe you can clarify this for me, but I think that we, we're kind of from a engineering background, right? And I think as engineers and as engineering centers, I think we're still trying to figure out how to best credit young faculty for participating in these larger projects. So I, I wanted to kind of pick your brain about how the community that you're part of uh, credits faculty because they're not m- maybe necessarily working on their all on their own, coming up with their own ideas, but it's obviously going to go into their tenure package that they were that they were making important contributions. So, is there a way that that is done effectively in your field, or maybe there's still some work well, to be done? You know, it, it's our field maybe has done it a little bit better than than the engineering and business. You know, for example, as I mentioned, I was a PI on center grants. And then, you know, uh, our tenure P&T would be able to reflect that person's individual contribution, even though sort of at the federal level, it says Beth Calhoun. But on their, you know, when are reviewing in P&T, whatever component they have, we're, we are able to recognize those junior people as principal investigators of that component. And it took time, right? But I, you know, I've been at three universities and when I, when I was at, um, the University of Illinois in Chicago, we revised our P&T to reflect those contributions, even though when you would, you know, go to NIH reporter or whatever, it doesn't list them. So I think, you know, working at a P&T level is important and, and, you know, that's going to be discipline specific, you know? Yeah, and a changing landscape too as we go more and more toward team science rewards and um, interdisciplinarity as it as it kind of evolves. But I think that ties in with your idea to be strategic at a number of levels, both like your outputs, but also your relationships that you feed. Yeah, I mean the interdisciplinary stuff really does need to be at the at the institutional level changed, right? I mean. We're, we're, you know, we're, I see the struggle, right? I see the traditional business folks look at me, even though my PhD is in health administration. So it's a business degree and and I'm teaching in the business school, but I'm not the traditional to it. They're like, what is your managerial theory? So I'm like, well, I don't have any of those. <laughs> <laughs> I do different stuff. I love it. You know? <laughs> 
See, that's the confidence we're talking about. Like saying, freely saying, yeah, that's not something I know is a a huge (laughs) position of strength. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally. That's it. There's there's real power in that for sure. Right. Uh, and so we're going to transition into uh, the, a little segment that we do at the end of every episode, which we call the light speed round, where we're going to ask you a few questions just really quickly. And we will we'll try to minimize the conversation from our end and let you, you know, co- think of the first thing that comes to mind. And if you have to take a second, please take a second. But we're uh, ex- we are we we enjoy we enjoy this part because it's um it's it kind of reveals a little bit more about our guests, uh, maybe personally too. So, okay, question or the first question is: What is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, the best advice I've ever received. Well, actually, it was it, when I decided to become an academic. I didn't just I didn't go to, to graduate school thinking I was going into academics. I worked in the private sector, and they told me to come work for the good guys. And I've enjoyed a good academic career. <laughs> I actually work for a for-profit healthcare corporation. So in that case, they were kind of the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What's your favorite thing about your job? I would say is actually working with the young people. I like students and junior faculty. I don't like working with my colleagues that much anymore. <laughs> and I don't have to, so I'm over it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, last question. <laughs> last question. Unless Christine has another one. Do you have a resolution for 2019? Uh, my resolution is to get my son kicking butt. <laughs> See, all this mentoring practice is going to be put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. Drink less. <laughs> be a little more healthy, maybe. <laughs> but no. Not also for- good. Also solid. Yeah, solid choices. You know. Career-wise, I'm in a little different place, right? I'm just I'm more thinking about retirement. My goal is retirement. Um, and how do I get there? I'm trying to get your sister to retire too. Oh gosh, that sounds like perfect. And then I can come visit you all on your um a long sabbatical and and pick your brains. Oh yes. Oh, you know, actually, here uh, this uh, this is an important thing. I've never taken a sabbatical and I was never at institutions where people took sabbaticals. I'm now at the University of Arizona, which is kind of a slow paced place compared to Chicago. Every single person I've met has taken a sabbatical or two or three. And actually there's a very senior person who is maybe a couple years older than me. But she, we're about the same level. And her sabbatical is actually, she's going to learn. She's going to Australia. She's going to go meet people that, you know, she's a nutritionist, sort of a cancer prevention person. Well, I would say if you have an opportunity, you know, you might not be able to take a year as a junior person. But I sort of regret now, looking back, not doing that, you know, um, it might be a good resolution to keep yourself healthy and sane, you know, in this uh, in this little bit of a brutal uh, career that we've chosen, you know, and just to reboot. And, you know, it might be just for re- writing, but I like her strategy of learning, you know, because we all are lifelong learners or we wouldn't be doing this. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So I was like, oh gosh, I wish I would have done that, you know? That's really fantastic advice. And I, I think especially in the kind of mix of all the complex team stuff that you're talking about and you've got responsibilities to, you know, mouths you have to feed both in your home and your work and right. um, and people that need you and your time, it, it's probably very easy to not prioritize that and really good advice to kind of have that cleansing, rejuvenating time. And and I do. I think that's, that's true. And, and if I were to advise my old self, my young self, I guess my young self, I would advise my early career, Beth Calhoun, to take a little bit of a breather. And, you know, it probably, um, I don't know that it would change the trajectory of my life, but I, I do regret that. Well, I think that that is very poignant advice and a perfect way to end this episode. So thank you for joining us, Beth. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. It was as fun as it always is. You've been listening to episode 18 of Helium Podcast. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 18. Now, if you go to the show notes page, you'll find our brand new guide called Focus Friday. And that guide will help you streamline your week so you can have your Friday to work on your big projects and think about your big ideas and have your biggest impact. That guide is free and available to anyone who listens to the show. So it's just a thank you to you for being a loyal listener to the show. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss episode 19. In that episode, we'll be talking about how to go from having no network with industry members or limited network to having a strong network with industry members so that they can help fund your research. The music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake. He can be found at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by Zach Hendren and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and me, Matt Hotze. Until next time. May your impact be greater than your impact factor. Thank you, everyone.